Hello, everybody, and welcome into this episode number 44 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today, we're talking about how Jesus defeated death, but how can we know it really happened? We're also going to have a book giveaway today, and yes, this is a better late than never edition. I am sorry for being late on this edition of the podcast. I think I have a decent excuse. Yesterday, which was Wednesday at about 4 o'clock, I went out and jogged a few miles, got home showered, ate a little bit of food in preparation to go teach at our church, Valley Baptist Church in Salinas. And by the way, if you're in the Monterey or Salinas area of Central California, man, come hang out with us on a Sunday or Wednesday. We'd love to have you. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to hang out with my church family last night because right before it was time to go, my heart started racing and it wouldn't stop. I have no idea why. I wasn't stressed out or anything. So I had my eldest daughter drive me over to the emergency room. They admitted me there, ran more tests on me than I took in fifth grade, and they drew more blood out of me than a hefty vampire eats in a decade. Uh, Yeah, I know, that's probably in bad taste. Uh, Fat-shaming vampires is wrong. I'm sorry, Drac. Anyway, the hospital finally let me go around 6 p.m. today, so I was there for about 24 hours, and they said that everything with my heart was good, all the tests passed and all that kind of stuff, and they thanked me for all of the blood I gave them. So, here I am, drained, but unwilling to miss a day on our podcast adventure. Today's adventure readings are in Genesis 46, which sees Israel leave and settle in Egypt. Job chapter 12, which sees Job fire an awesome, snappy, snarky comeback at Zophar. And Romans 16, in which Paul commends the mysterious Phoebe. One episode soon, we're going to talk about whether or not Phoebe was a deacon, but today's focus is on Mark chapter 16 and on the resurrection and how we can know Jesus overcame death. Now, because I lost a day to my involuntary blood donation drive, I'm going to actually read a chapter out of my book, Easter Fact or Fiction which discusses an interesting, maybe absurd, reason to believe that Jesus did rise from the dead. Yeah, I know it's kind of slightly lame to read out of the book, uh, but to counterbalance it, I'll send a free copy of that book in paperback form via Amazon to anyone who leaves an iTunes review this week. Just screenshot that review and send it to my email address, chaseathompson at gmail.com. That's Chase. A Thompson at gmail.com and I will send you a free copy of the book that I'm about to read in. Now, that might be lame too, but you know what? Cut me some slack. I'm a little bloodless today. Also look for a future upcoming episode on the so-called longer ending of Mark. Is it legit? But again, today is not that day. Since I've got emergency rooms and doctors and all of that kind of stuff on my mind, I do want to open up with a discussion I screenshotted on my phone a few years ago, and I saved it for good reason. It is a doctor uh, from an emergency room, an ICU situation, who is sharing the story of a young man that uh, very sadly died in surgery. And I'm going to pick up this conversation that I believe this was on Reddit. All I have is the screenshot, screenshot, but I believe it was on Reddit. And the doctor says that um, I got everything ready to operate on this young man. The last thing he said to me was, Doc, please don't let me die. 
I told him I would do my very best. I got him intubated and transferred to the ICU. A few weeks later, I was on call covering the ICU and he was barely hanging on. I knew he would not make it through the night. He went into V-fib several times and I was able to bring him back, but only briefly. He was just too sick and he died shortly after that. It was horrible talking to his mother and girlfriend and comforting them, knowing the last words he ever spoke to me were saying, please don't let me die. Now that is tough for a doctor to have to deal with. I had four doctors see me in the last 24 hours, and each one of them were great. Uh, The two emergency room doctors were absolutely overwhelmed just rushing about just because the the ER last night was absolutely flooded. But man, they did as good a job as they possibly could. And I appreciate that. And they were dealing with some hard, hard issues. I don't think anybody died in the ER last night, but that happens. And somebody responded to this doctor and said this. He said, on the other hand, you were true to your word. You did your best and you didn't let him die. Death had to fight you for it. And the guy replied and said, I've been a a doc for 20 years. I've helped countless patients survive and far too many that didn't to the point of questioning my own sanity. Your single comment has just made one of the most profound changes in my own life. This is absolutely the best way that I've ever heard it described. I used to feel like I was a failure or didn't do enough if the patient didn't pull through. Now I see it was a knockdown drag out battle for their life. And you know what? There's actually some biblical truth to this conversation. The Bible in 1 Corinthians 15 and in the cha- and the last few chapters of Revelation frames death as an enemy. Death is an enemy. So the idea of a doctor fighting death for the life of a person is there's some rationality to it because the Bible says death is an enemy. So with death being one of the chief enemies of humanity, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is that Christ died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead. And that hope is found in Mark chapter 16. So let's read that real quick. Mark chapter 16, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you. And they went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Later on, in the first day of the week, after he had risen, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him as they were mourning and weeping. Yet when they heard that he was alive and he had been seen by her, they did not believe it. After this, he appeared 
in a different form to two of them walking on their way into the country. And they went and reported it to the rest, who did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen. Then he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes if they should drink anything deadly, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will get well. So the Lord Jesus, after speaking to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the accompanying signs. Amen. This is a great story. It's hopeful. In the midst of death and 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 dying and fear, and I got to tell you, I was afraid in the emergency room with my heart going all crazy like it was going. I, it turns out I probably wasn't in any sort of medical danger whatsoever. It turns out my heart's actually in really good shape, according to the doctors. But it, with it acting like it was, I was afraid. What is our hope when we're afraid, when we look at the giant enemy of death? And of course, the answer is the resurrection of Jesus, that he overcame death. Big question, how do we know it happened? How do we share with others that it happened? Well, I wrote a book on that. The book is called Easter Factor Fiction, and I want to read to you a chapter from there. Now, this is a thought experiment. It doesn't prove anything, but it's a, a thought experiment is something that gets you thinking philosophically. So here it goes. When I was a teenager, the number one high school recruit in the nation was a guy named Todd Marinovich. Now, this is true and tells you how old I am. Todd was a great quarterback who ultimately signed with Southern California and went on to play pro football for the Oakland Raiders. Todd's father raised him from a baby to be a quarterback, utilizing every opportunity possible to train his son. In fact, Todd was famous as the kid who had never eaten a hamburger or any other junk food by the time he signed with the Trojans. Perhaps unsurprisingly, things didn't end up so well for Marinovich. While he did play quarterback at a high-profile college, and he actually played in the NFL too, his career ultimately ended poorly due to drugs and other troubling issues. It seems that it might be a bad idea to raise somebody to be a robo quarterback from the age of two. It does cause you to think, however. Let's do a thought experiment. What if your goal was not to raise a great quarterback, but to raise your son to become the most famous person that ever lived? Let's consider that you have a budget of $25 million to make this happen. And you use a chunk of money to hire some of the best fame consultants that the world has to offer. After a year-long research uh, period, these consultants come to you with the following seven-step plan. Number one, your son needs to be born in a dank and unsanitary room unfit for human habitation with urine and animal droppings all around. For good measure, they tell you, make sure your son sleeps his first few nights in an animal's feeding trough. Number two, your son's birth should be heralded and announced by some dirty and poorly thought of shepherds to proclaim his arrival. Number three, your son must stay almost 100% exclusively in an area the size of Rhode Island for his entire life. Number four, your son must never write a book or leave any art behind or letter or even a self-portrait. 
only his memories and teachings. Number five, your son should have followers, but very uninfluential followers, ones that are possessed of little fame, money, or import. Number six, your son must die before he reaches the prime of his influence, which for most men is in their mid-40s to their mid-50s. Number seven, finally, these consultants recommend that your son must be executed by the state in the most dishonorable way possible. For an American, that's probably hanging or by the electric chair. For a first century Jewish person, that would be death by a cross. Now, if you paid a couple of million dollars for that kind of advice to raise your son into the most famous person that's ever lived... I bet you would be immediately asking for your money back because that is ridiculous advice. I suspect that you would fire your advisors with extreme prejudice the moment they presented you with such a ridiculous plan. Not a single one of the seven steps above are even remotely conducive to becoming famous. Indeed, every single one of those seven steps would seem to favor anything but fame, import, and influence. And yet, Jesus met all of the above criteria and then some. He was born in a most embarrassing and unimpressive manner. His childhood was spent as an immigrant on the run. In a foreign country from government officials that desired to kill him. To our knowledge, Jesus never wrote a book or a letter or any work of art whatsoever. There are no surviving pictures of Jesus within hundreds of years of his life, so we have no idea what he might have looked like. He lived in a the tiny country of Israel, which is much smaller than most people realize. Consider the state of Alabama, where I was born. It is 52,000 square miles in size, and it is the 30th largest state and 30th largest state in the United States. It's much smaller than its neighbor, Georgia, and you could fit around six Israels in Alabama. Six Israels in that state. And that's where Jesus spent his entire life with maybe two exceptions. Jesus never traveled beyond the borders of his tiny nation. Finally, as noted above, he died the most ignoble death possible as a condemned enemy of both his home country and the ruling power of the world at the time. Given all of that, how in the world has Jesus become the most famous and influential person to ever live? It's not like he had an army of followers, just 12 uninfluential men and a group of women who traveled with the Jesus team to meet their needs. Jesus might have been somewhat famous in his own home country, but even there he was quite unpopular with the rich and famous, with perhaps Simon the leper and Joseph of Arimathea being the lone exception. If there was no resurrection, then what might explain Jesus' startling and sustained rise to fame and influence? The Bible, of course, would point to the fact that Jesus is the only person who ever lived who has permanently overcame death. Yes, Lazarus was resurrected, but only temporarily overcame death. The Bible would also indicate that, after Jesus' ascension, God sent the Holy Spirit to fill and empower all who follow Jesus, which enabled them to take his good news to every corner of the earth. But if you don't agree with the biblical account of the spread of Jesus' fame, what is your explanation? And in the name of science, do you think your theory might be repeatable? In other words, do you think it would be, poss be possible, given a skeptic's explanation for the rise in fame of Jesus, for that process to be duplicated? Could somebody 
else with Jesus's giftings and geographical technological limitations become as famous as Jesus did? I suspect not. Every hypothesis which attempts to explain the fame of Jesus apart from the resurrection of Jesus is ultimately not scientifically sustainable, since such a hypothesis such a hypothesis could not be tested. Skeptics like Jeffrey J. Louder suggest that a claim like the resurrection of Jesus requires extraordinary evidence before one could logically accept it as true. I concede his point, and I agree with him. However, I believe that there is plenty of extraordinary evidence that points to the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus, including the fame of Jesus, the spread of the gospel, and the fact that almost one-third of the known world today were worships a Galilean that was born over 2,000 years ago. I suggest that if you are going to doubt the resurrection, you should have extraordinary evidence that refutes it. I've never seen a skeptic produce any such evidence that would refute convincingly any Christian claim about the resurrection of Jesus. In this light, follow the following statement, uh, ponder the following statement from pastor and writer Tim Keller. The resurrection of Jesus was a major historical problem, no matter how you looked at it. Most modern historians made the philosophical assumption that miracles simply cannot happen, and that made the claim of the resurrection highly problematic. However, if you disbelieved the resurrection, you then had the difficulty of explaining how the Christian church got started at all. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he did not rise from the dead, then you have to... Uh, you don't have to worry about anything, he said. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. That is how the first hearers felt when they heard the reports of the resurrection. They knew that if it was true, it meant we can't live our lives any way we want. It also meant we don't have to be afraid of anything. Not Roman swords, not cancer, nothing. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. Most people think that when it comes to Jesus' resurrection, the burden of proof is on believers to give evidence that it happened. That's not completely the case, says Keller. The resurrection also puts a burden of proof on its non-believers. It's not enough to simply believe Jesus did not rise from the dead. You must then come up with a historically feasible alternate explanation for the birth of the church. You have to provide some other plausible account for how things began. Essentially, then, I am arguing in this book, in this chapter of this book, that Jesus is coming from utter obscurity to time-dominating ultra-relevance is a proof, so to speak, of the veracity of the Bible and the plausibility of the resurrection. You could not set out to Marinovich this. In other words, you could not set out to make the most famous person in history with the limitations that Jesus of Nazareth faced. And yet here we are. He is demonstrably and scientifically the most famous person in history. Before you scoff at this too much, my dear skeptic friend, consider well how you would explain Jesus's meteoric rise and sustained rise to relevance absent the resurrection. Genesis chapter 46 verse 1. Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. That night God spoke to Israel in a vision. Jacob, Jacob, he said. And Jacob replied, Here I am. 
God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you back. Joseph will close your eyes when you die. Jacob left Beersheba. The sons of Israel took their father, Jacob, in the wagons Pharaoh had sent to carry him, along with their dependents and their wives. They also took their cattle and possessions they had acquired in the land of Canaan. Then Jacob and all his offspring with him came to Egypt, his sons and grandsons, his daughters and granddaughters. Indeed, all his offspring he brought with them to Egypt. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Jacob's firstborn, Reuben. Reuben's sons, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. Simeon's sons, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. Levi's sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Judah's sons, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. Issachar's sons, Tola, Puva, Jashub, and Shimron, Zebulon's sons, Sered, Elan, and Jaleel. These were Leah's sons born to Jacob in Paddan Aram, as well as his daughter, Dinah. The total number of persons, 33. Gad's sons, Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erodi, Ereli. Asher's sons, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Beriah, and their sister, Sarah. Beriah's sons were Heber and Malkiel. These were the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah that she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. Manasseh and Ephraim were born to Joseph in the land of Egypt. They were born to him by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, a priest at On. Benjamin's sons, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These were Rachel's sons who were born to Jacob, fourteen persons. Dan's sons, Hushim, Naphtali's sons, Jaziel, Guni, Jatsir, Shalem. These were the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Rachel. She bore to Jacob seven persons. The total number of persons belonging to Jacob, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons who came to Egypt, were sixty-six. And Jacob's sons who were born to him in Egypt, two persons. All these of Jacob's household who came to Egypt... 70 persons. Now Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to prepare for his arrival at Goshen. When they came to the land of Goshen, Joseph hitched the horses to his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. Joseph presented himself to him, threw his arms around him, and wept for a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, I am ready to die now because I have seen your face and you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's families, Family, I will go up and inform Pharaoh, telling him, My brothers and my father's family who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds. They also raise livestock. They have brought their flocks and herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh addresses you and asks, What is your occupation? You are to say, Your servants, both we and our fathers, have raised livestock from our youth until now. Then you will be allowed to settle in the land of Goshen, since all shepherds are detestable to Egyptians. Job chapter 12, verse 1. Then Job answered, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. 
Zinged. But I also have a mind like you. I'm not inferior to you. Who doesn't know the things you're talking about? I am a laughingstock to my friends. By calling on God who answers me, the righteous and upright man is a laughingstock. The one who is at ease holds calamity and contempt and thinks it is prepared for those whose feet are slipping. The tents of robbers are safe, and those who trouble God are secure. God holds them in his hands. But ask the animals, and they will instruct you. Ask the birds of the sky, and they will tell you, or speak to the earth, and it will instruct you. Let the fish of the sea inform you. Which of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? The life of every living thing is in his hand, as well as the breath of all mankind. Doesn't the ear test words as the palate tests food? Tastes food? Wisdom is found with the elderly, and understanding comes with long life. Wisdom and strength belong to God. Counsel and understanding are His. Whatever whatever He tears down cannot be rebuilt. Whoever He imprisons cannot be released. When He withholds water, everything dries up, and when He releases it, it destroys the land. True wisdom and power belong to Him. The deceived and the deceiver are His. He leads counselors away barefoot and makes judges go mad. He releases the bonds put on by kings and fastens a belt around their waists. He leads priests away barefoot and overthrows established leaders. He deprives trusted advisors of speech and takes away the elders' good judgment. He pours out contempt on nobles and disarms the strong. He reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deepest darkness into the light. He makes nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges nations, then leads them away. He deprives the Lord's, the world's leaders of reason and makes them wander in a trackless wasteland. They grope around in darkness without light. He makes them stagger like a drunkard. Romans 16 verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Centria. So you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever matter she may require your help. For indeed, she has been a benefactor of many and of me also. Give my greetings to Prisca and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. Greet also the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend Epanius, Epinatus, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews and fellow prisoners. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, and they were also in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our worker in Christ, and my dear friend Statius. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those who belong to the household of Narcissus, who were in the Lord. Greet Tryphenia and Tryphosa, who have worked hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philogus and Julia, Nereus and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send you greetings. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learned. Avoid them. 
Because such people do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. The report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who gr- wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me in the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus, greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures, according to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among the Gentiles, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever. Amen. May the Lord bless you, my dear friends. I hope to be back tonight with episode number 45, Lord willing and eyes being able to stay open. We will see you then. Good night and Godspeed.